Last week we started a new study on Thursday night. Thursday is going to be our in-depth study night, and we decided to do a study in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark's Gospel, as we said last week, is the shortest of the four Gospels, probably because Mark was writing to the Romans, and the Romans were notoriously impatient people. And Mark doesn't want to concern himself with a lot of not trivial details, obviously nothing about the life of Christ is trivial, but Mark has one purpose in mind, and that is he, to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't waste any time with Jesus' earlier years, his birth, anything like that. He just wants to get right to the gospel. And so he begins his gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He just launches right in, and the first person he introduces us to is the messenger that God sent before his son to prepare the way for his coming. That would be John the Baptist. John was a divinely ordained messenger that went before the Lord to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Jesus Christ. And the message that he came with was simple, direct, basic, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's John's was John's message. That was the extent of it. He was calling people to repentance. After Mark introduces us to the messenger, he introduces us then to the Messiah. And uh, we saw last week that he said, verse 7, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Indeed, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So here is the Messiah now. He presents himself, first of all, to John to be baptized. Now, some people stumble over that because baptism was a symbolic thing where you're confessing your sins and through the water you're kind of uh, symbolizing the cleansing of your sins from you. Repentance was, of course, necessary for the receiving of the Messiah. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Obviously, there was no sin in him that he needed to repent for. Well, the only thing we can figure out is that Jesus was trying to identify himself with us. Uh, he came down as one of us. He identified himself with the human race. And in that regard, he took it upon himself to be baptized. In fact, it really bothered John. Matthew tells us that John says, You're coming to me to be baptized. I have need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, John, let it be so that we might fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus was identifying himself with the human race. He was also, I think, laying down an example for us to follow. Obviously, you know, Jesus blazed the way for us. He was the the one who showed us how to live and all. And in that regard, he was laying out an example for us to follow through water baptism. Through baptism, not only did Christ identify with us, but we identify with him. The scripture says in his death, burial, and resurrection, I identify with Christ through water baptism. Uh, as we dip someone backward into the water uh, and they go underneath, it signifies the burial of the old life. And as they come up, it signifies a resurrection of sorts and the beginning of a new life, a life of consecration to God, see? And uh, that's what water baptism signifies. Water baptism, as we said last week, doesn't save anybody. It symbolizes the cleansing work that Jesus has brought into our lives through his blood. Only the blood of Christ can really cleanse us of our sins. We all know that. Water baptism is a beautiful ritual that the Lord commanded us to follow, but it did not do anything for us spiritually with regard to sin. John, when he saw Jesus coming to him in John chapter 1, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only Christ can take away the sin of the world, and that was through his blood. But water baptism does then serve an important purpose. I think for us it helps us to, you know, to break ties with the past and to in our own minds, at least, if not publicly, as a public declaration, uh, that I'm starting a new life. This is the first day of the rest of my life, which is a new life for Christ. And I think in that regard, it's important, very important. So 
through water baptism, he identified with us, and we, of course, then identify with him. And so Jesus came to John and was baptized in the Jordan, verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Not only was Jesus baptized in water, but after he came up out of the water, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And first of all, this was God's way of telling not only John the Baptist, but all those that were there that this is the Messiah, the Son of God. Because in John chapter 1, John said, John the Baptist said, The one who sent me to baptize told me, The one who comes to you and you see the dove, the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove and remaining, it is he who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It is he who is Messiah, the Son of God. And so when Jesus came to John and the Spirit of God came upon Jesus Christ, it signaled to John that this was the one that was coming after him whose sandals, as he said himself, he was not worthy to stoop down and loose. He was the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Now, this is a very important scripture here because for 30 years, Jesus Christ has been serving his family, basically. He's been raised by his stepfather, Joseph, who by this time we assume has passed away. And so Jesus, being the firstborn of the family, was no doubt caring for his mother and younger brothers after his stepfather had passed away. And uh, for 30 years, he was basically doing that very thing, living quietly. We don't really know what those years were all about. We only get a glimpse of him at around age 12 as he's in the, the temple teaching. And uh, the Pharisees and the doctors of the law were astonished because this young boy had such a grasp of the scriptures and all. Well, the Spirit of God was, was with him even from birth. We know that. And he, no doubt, studied the scriptures a great deal. And, you know, we sometimes lean so much to the uh, deity side of Christ that a statement like that kind of almost shocks us. Why did he have to study? He was, he was God. Well, yes, but he took the form of a man with all the limitations. He had to learn and grow, and um, he gave himself to that for 30 years. He knew the message he was going to proclaim, the message it was he came to bring the world. And yet he wasn't ready until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. I personally believe, and I'm not alone of course, but I personally believe that Jesus Christ could have performed all the miracles he wanted to just because he was God. But when he took the form of a man, the Bible says he became a little lower than the angels to accomplish the mission. He took on the limitations of a man. And as such, I believe he laid aside his own powers and availed himself to the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that he came to do. Why? Well, first of all, I think if he would have exercised his own power as, a, as God, it would have violated his humanity. Secondly, I think being our example and the one who would say, look, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to give to you another helper, the spirit of truth who will come and you know give you the, the power you need to live for me and be a witness for me and all. I think that as Jesus passed along the baton, if you will, to his church to continue on in the work that he had begun, he wanted us to know that he had availed himself of the same power he was leaving to us. I mean, if he would have done the miracles and lived the life he lived by his own power, well, we have no innate supernatural power, and we couldn't have really related, I don't think, completely to him saying, then, look, go ahead and continue on where I've left off. Well, sure, Lord, that's easy for you to say, you're God, but what about us? No, the same power that I've availed of myself to the Holy Spirit, I'm giving to you. So you'll have that power to be witnesses for me and to carry on the work that I've begun. So the Lord was making himself subject to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this was important for a lot of reasons because the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a baptism of power for service. When we get saved, the Spirit of God comes in us. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. But I'm convinced not all Christians have the Holy Spirit upon them. See, not all Christians have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit comes upon them. And that power then for service is there. See, and that's what we're talking about here. Jesus Christ waited until the Spirit came upon him to give him that power for ministry. And it wasn't until then 
that he went out. You know, right after this, the spirit we're going to see drives him into the wilderness where Satan tempts him for 40 days. And then after that, he begins his public ministry, which says to me that until you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're not ready for the spirit to lead you in any spiritual warfare. And secondly, you're not ready for public service. So the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the gateway that really opens the way for us to really begin to be used by God. And anyone who is used by God is going to come across a reality right away, and that is that you have an adversary, the devil, who will come against you at every turn and try to knock you off your course. So spiritual warfare and service for God go hand in hand. But I think that none of us can enter into that phase of our life with God until we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so after the Lord is, comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, then a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And right here we have manifested the Trinity. We see the Son. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. We hear the Father's voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the scriptures teach one God, but in some kind of a plurality. Three persons, separate and distinct from each other, all making up one God. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what we, as, we believe as Christians. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. The Jews had a lot of concepts about God, and it would have been hard to pin them all down and come to a consensus among them about any one particular doctrine except for one, the Shema. And that is the Jewish statement of faith that they all subscribe to. And that is, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they would sometimes chant that for hours when they got together on a holy day or a, or a feast day. The Lord our God is one Lord. And so that was the Jewish concept. God was one. The thing about that is, in the Shema, the word for one there in the Hebrew is a word that means a compound unity. They had a word that meant one, only, sole, single. And they had a word that meant one in a compound unity. When they brought back the cluster of grapes from the promised land, it was one cluster made up of many individual members. That was the Hebrew word used there. And the Hebrew word used in the Shema, the Jewish statement of faith about God, is the Lord our God is one Lord, and yet the word they used was a compound unity. They didn't even realize what they were saying. Because when Jesus came claiming to be equal with God and the Son of God, they rejected him because they believed there's only one God, which they're absolutely right. And yet they failed to see the compound unity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all being the one God. And Jehovah's Witnesses have a problem with this verse here because they don't believe in the trinity but you know here it is right here and other places even in the very ver first verse of the bible in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth again the hebrew word for god there is elohim which is plural and it's not plural in the dual it's plural in the three or more sense because the jews have a dual they can use that would mean just two but moses takes it to the three or more the plural form elohim and yet he couples it with a singular verb, which is really grammatically incorrect. But he does that to try to communicate something that we really have no concept of, really, in a clumsy way, trying to communicate to us three persons, but one God, see? Plural noun, singular verb. He's three separate and distinct persons in one Godhead, see? So here it is, the Trinity being manifested here. And then it says immediately, and Mark loves this word because he's moving right along, okay? In fact, he uses this Greek word over 40 times in his gospel, more than the entire rest of the New Testament uses it. He wants to just get this gospel. He wants to present it as quickly as he can before he probably loses the attention of his Roman audience. He wants to fire out the gospel so that they can absorb it as quickly as possible in the hopes that they'll get saved. But immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. And that's all he says. Now, there's a lot there that he just skips over. And I personally would like to spend just a moment on some of it. In Luke chapter 4, this is a, a little morsel here that we shouldn't just 
pass over briefly. Luke 4 is the parallel passage. And I want you to see it in its entire context because it's so important, all right? Verse 1 says this, Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, that's the same way of saying after having been baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, same, it's interchangeable, that term. In the book of Acts, we see it all the time. The disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's the same concept. The Spirit had come upon them and upon the Lord for service, see? And it wasn't until they were baptized with the Spirit that they began their ministry in Acts chapter 2. But then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led. Mark says he was driven. Very strong Greek word. As soon as he was baptized with the Spirit, the Spirit let, drove him out into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. He didn't fast for 40 days and then was tempted, as sometimes we think. He fasted that whole 40 days and was continually being tempted by the devil. And the topper came, as we're going to read at the end of the 40 days when Satan kind of pulled out all the stops and really nailed him hard three different times with temptation he ate nothing and afterward when he had ended they had ended he was hungry now he was at his weakest point physically and Satan will oftentimes hit us when we're weak physically because the spirit and the physical are so integrated that what affects one affects the other a lot of times and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now Satan is going to orchestrate his temptation in a very deliberate way. It's a pattern that he follows quite often. Okay, And he first of all came and he appealed to Jesus' physical hunger. He knew he was hungry and said, Look, we know, you know, I know you're hungry. If you're the son of God, prove it. Command the stone to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now notice Jesus Christ didn't, you know, didn't say to Satan, Satan, you're a liar. This doesn't belong to you. So how could you give it to me? He didn't dispute what he just said, because he knew that Satan was in control of the world. And he gained control of the world when Adam and Eve sinned against God because they were given the world. It was theirs to watch over. And when they sinned against the Lord, they gave it over to Satan and he became the master of this world, the Lord of this world. Jesus didn't dispute Satan's claim to be the one in authority over the world. He didn't dispute that because it was true. And Satan said, look, I know why you're here. You're here to gain the world back and receive the worship for being the ruler of the world. Don't go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you everything you came to win by going to the cross. Doesn't Satan often do that? Don't go to the cross. I'll give it to you the easy way. See? What are you looking for? I can, I can match what God's offering you without you going to the cross. Go for the immediate gratification. See? That's what Satan was saying to, to Christ, and he still says it to us today. But Jesus said... Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on, a, on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now notice Satan quotes scriptures to the Lord. And they're real scriptures. The only problem is he takes them out of context, as he often does. He quotes scripture out of context, and if you don't know the scriptures, well, you'll be deceived into thinking, hey, this guy, many times was a minister of Satan, uh, this guy really knows the Bible. Why? Well, he quotes it constantly, yeah. And does he take it out of context, though? 
Satan was quoting the scriptures, but Jesus, knowing the scriptures, always countered. See, that's why you have to know the word, because the word is your sword. And you have to know it well enough to use it to counteract when Satan lunges at you with something out of context. You, you have to use the word to counteract, to parry the enemy's thrust and deflect it. And you're not going to be able to do that unless you know what the scriptures say. And Jesus knew the scriptures. Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He wasn't done with the Lord. He just... That was it. The Father allowed him so much leeway. The Lord stood up against the attacks of Satan, so that was it for the, for the time being. And the angels came, it says, and ministered to him. Three times Satan attacked. Three times, what did Jesus, how did Jesus counter? With the Word of God. Three times he said, it is written. You know, we've talked about this before. The Word of God is your defense against the enemy. It's your sword, see? He didn't throw any these goofy formulas at Satan that we hear so much about. He didn't say, I bind you, Satan. I, you know, rebuke you, Satan. He used the word of God, you see? That's how Satan was rebuked and, you know, put off. The word of God. If you study this, though, I said that Satan orchestrated this temptation according to some very definite guidelines. Remember what John said in his first epistle when he said, look, beloved, don't be friends with the world. For friendship with the world is enmity against God. For all that is in the world is the lust of what? The flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are not of the Father, but are of the world. The world is rapidly passing away. If you notice, Satan seems to orchestrate his temptations around those three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Notice, quickly, the first temptation. What did he appeal to? He was hungry. He appealed to his flesh, his physical hunger. Jesus said, it is written, you shall, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The lust of the flesh. What was the second temptation? Showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Said, all these are mine, I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. The lust of the eyes. The third one, took him up to the pinnacle, the, the temple. The temple area was always packed with people. Rabbis teaching, disciples, a lot of people. Can you imagine what it would have been to see Jesus throw himself off the temple and suddenly angels catch him in midair and bring him gently down to the ground? That would have created quite a scene. Would have really appealed to an average man's ego. Of course, the Lord didn't have an ego, so, but it was the pride. It would have appealed to human pride to show everyone, hey, I'm someone special, that angels even keep me from falling lest I dash my foot against a stone. The pride of life. Satan will always try to nail us in those, one of those three ways, or if not all those three ways. So, very important, very important. Now, after the temptation, what's the next thing that happens? Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." This is where Jesus now officially begins his public ministry in Nazareth, the place that he grew up. But I want you to see all of Luke chapter 4 in its context. First, he was baptized by John in water, and the Spirit of God came upon him. That signal now that he was infused with the power of God, where he could now begin his service for God. And the Spirit then took him and drove him out into the wilderness for Satan to tempt him. Sometimes we call it the testing of Christ in the wilderness. Why? To see if he could stand up, to see if he could meet the challenge, to see if he was really going to be able to, to gain the victory? I don't believe that. I don't think there was any way Christ wasn't going to meet the challenge or not gain the victory. I think more than anything else, he was out there not to prove anything to himself or anyone else concerning himself. He was out there to prove something to Satan. See, Satan had caused the first Adam to fall through temptation. And it's interesting how that the first Adam and Eve were the direct creation of God and they were born without a sin nature. How did Satan tempt them? By coming to them directly. 
He had no sin nature to work through. He had to come directly. Jesus Christ was born without sin, without a sin nature. He came to Christ directly. Us, we're born with a sin nature. Satan doesn't have to come to us directly. He works from within, see, through our sin nature, which is right there, ready to be manipulated, and, you know, all the other things. And he'll tempt us through our own channels of our own sin nature. But for Adam and Eve and for Jesus Christ, he came directly. Now, the first Adam, of course, fell. And here was the second Adam, as the scriptures call him, ready to make right what the first Adam blew. And I think that Jesus was, was uh, putting Satan on notice that, hey, man, you got the first Adam to fall. I'm not the first Adam, see? I'm the second Adam. And take your best shot, pal, because I'm going to crush your head just as surely as I told you I was going to crush your head about 4,000 years earlier, right? Which is exactly what the Lord said to, to Adam and Eve, that someday Messiah was going to come and he was going to, uh, the serpent was going to bruise his heel, but he was going to crush the serpent's head. And he was putting Satan on notice. Hey, here I am. I've come. And uh, take your best shot because you're not going to win. And after he presented himself to Satan, in a sense, to be tempted, now he's going to present himself to the world. And he comes to Nazareth to begin his public ministry. But not until he's been baptized with the Spirit. And after that, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And, you know, <laughs> I think we understand this pretty well, that, you know, when we get serious about God, he gets serious about us. James says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. That's all there is to it. Whenever you're ready to get serious with God and draw close to him, he's only too willing and ready to draw close to you, to fill you with his spirit. But you know what? When he gets serious about you, Satan gets serious about you. And uh, the enemy is right there to try to, you know, to nail you, to uh, knock you off your course for God. And the Holy Spirit will fill us and oftentimes drive us into a wilderness time. Of course, he does that in our lives. It's different for us than with Christ. Uh, Jesus didn't have to prove anything. Uh, Jesus didn't have to be pruned. There wasn't any sin to cut away. With us, it's different. We get sent into the wilderness, I think, at times, spiritually speaking, to learn dependence on God. Uh, but you know what? Every time the Spirit drives us into the wilderness, it's not to crush us or to destroy us. It's always to prune us, to purify us, right? And it's always because after it's over with, he has got some new phase of ministry he wants to lead us into that the wilderness was just a necessary prerequisite for. God never, never puts you through a valley without having in his mind to raise you to a new mountaintop experience with him. So the valleys are not pleasant, but the deeper the valley, we can rejoice in the greater the glory that waits, awaits us because God is doing something. He's teaching us dependence. And you know what? That takes a lifetime to learn. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when man declared his independence from God, that's been the problem all along. We have put too much faith in ourselves, too much trust in our own human ability and resources, and we have not taken it upon ourselves to trust God. And so God is constantly trying to break us of self. Why? To get us to depend on Him. Because when we're weak, as Paul said, then we're really strong. See? So uh, just interesting, the consistency. And after the wilderness, boom, right into public ministry. Because he was baptized with the Spirit. He was ready now. He was, he was going to avail himself now the same power that he has given to us to be used in ministry. And so after he was tempted by Satan and all, and the angels came and ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus originally lived, well, he was uh, living down in the area of Nazareth. But after John was put in prison by Herod, things got a little bit hot politically. And we know that no one was going to take Jesus' life from him before his time. We know that. But Jesus didn't want to put the Lord to a foolish test either. Uh, and so he just removed himself. When things got a little bit too hot politically, he would just remove himself. See, Not that he worried that someone was going to force him to do something he wasn't ready to do. Uh, but simply just to remove himself so that there was no problems, you know. 
And so he moves up to the area of the Galilee. And um, he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time, he says, is fulfilled. The time had come. The Bible says in the fullness of time, Christ came born of a virgin. God has got a time. In fact, the scripture says, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to hear the gospel, a time to accept the gospel. Now, that's not in, uh, in uh, the, I'm ad living that, okay? Uh, that first part comes from um, Ecclesiastes, of course. But the point is that God is a time for everything. And Jesus said, the time has come. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, God gives everybody a chance to receive the good news. And that's what the word gospel means. Jesus Christ said, hey, the time has come. The good news of the kingdom is here. And it really wasn't only the message, was it? It was the messenger. Jesus Christ was the good news. He is the gospel, see? And he said, the time has come. Repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is here. And God gives everybody a chance to receive the good news. But, you know, there is a season. There is a time for every purpose. And if you don't seize that opportunity, it may pass you by. Uh, that's why Paul said today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as your fathers did in the wilderness because you may not get another opportunity. God is very gracious. But at one point, a person having said no to Christ and the gospel so much, and we don't know how much it is in each person's life, but once they say no, once too often they pass a spiritual point of no return. And then it's impossible for them to be saved. The Pharisees crossed that line. Remember in Matthew 12, when he was casting out demons, they said, hey, he does it by the power of the demons, Beelzebub, you know, the the Lord of the demons. And Jesus said, you guys better be very careful because you're coming dangerously close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is basically crossing that line. It's passing the point of no return where you can now no longer believe. And it says later on then in John 12, the Pharisees crossed that line and it says they could no longer believe. They had hardened their hearts so much, that was it. It was impossible for them to be saved. And I believe once a person crosses that line, there's no reason for God to leave them on the earth much longer. I, and this is, I have no way of proving this, but I personally believe once a person says no to Christ that last time, I think it's just a matter of just a short time, and the Lord will take them off this, this earth. Because there's no reason to let them stay, you know? And so Jesus came, and he said, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And again, as we said last time, repentance is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's where the gospel begins. It was the first word out of John's mouth, the first word out of Jesus' mouth, the first word out of Peter's mouth on the day of Pentecost. It was when he preached about how they were to be saved. It was the first word out of the disciples' mouths when Jesus gathered the twelve, made them his apostles and sent them out and told them to preach repentance. It was the first word out of Paul the Apostle's mouth when he began to preach. Repentance is where the gospel begins, and no one can get saved until they first come to repentance. And it's very important that we understand that because, again, we're living in a day and an age where the church thinks we can get people saved without preaching repentance. If we don't address the, the, the sinful things they're doing, we want to somehow come in the back door. We want to enter, just get them in the door any way you can. Entertain them into the kingdom. And while they're not looking, slip the gospel in. And you laugh, but I've heard, I've actually heard it put in kind of that way by some of the churches that are very into the, this kind of a thing. No one ever got saved when they weren't looking. And it's, okay? No one ever got saved when they weren't looking. Jesus confronted sin head on. Uh, the apostles did. Paul did. They all confronted sin head on. They said, look, the bad news is you're sinners and you're going to hell. 
That's what it's all about, folks. That's, that's where you are. And you have no, nothing in you that's going to change that. You have no hope, no power to change it in and of yourself. You are doomed to hell because you're sinners. And you prove you're sinners every day because you live in sin. But the good news is that Jesus came to die for sinners. But you've got to repent and believe the gospel. See, that's it. And if a person will do that, then the, gospel, the kingdom is theirs. If they will not... All the entertaining, all the promises of material blessing, come to Christ and you'll have a successful business, you'll have the Cadillacs, you'll have the houses. Well, what are you doing? People aren't coming to Christ because of repentance. They're coming to Christ because of all the material blessings that you're promising them. Again, no one ever got saved by being bribed into the kingdom. you got to repent. I think a classic example of this is the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Read that again and think about it. That really hit me when I really began to think about that passage. Here was a young Jewish guy. He was a good, good man. He was moral. We know that. He was um, a religious man. In fact, he was a, a ruler of a synagogue. And yet he realized there was something lacking in his life. He came to Jesus Christ and said, you know, what must I do to have everlasting life? I mean, this guy's a prime candidate for salvation. If any one of us would have, this guy would have come to any one of us, we probably would have had him kneel right then and there and just accept Christ. But Jesus knew the hearts of men, and he knew there was something standing between this man and him, and that was his money. Here was a guy who was moral, religious. He was open to the things of God. In fact, he recognized there was something lacking in his life spiritually. He wanted eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, great. Let's kneel right now. Let's pray. Just believe Jesus. Yeah, just believe Jesus. Well, he had something he needed to repent for. His money was standing in the way. He was a rich man. And his money was on the throne of his heart. Jesus said, give it all away and come follow me. Because I know that's what your problem is. So give it away and just come and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had much wealth. See, he wouldn't repent. And Jesus would not accept him until he did. Jesus held his, his position. And the guy went away sorrowful, and we assume he never did repent and was lost. I think sometimes we're a little too quick to lead someone in a prayer of salvation. We're a little too quick because we have good intentions. We want to see them saved. Yet we don't take the time to address their lives at all. Not that they have to be, obviously, clean up their life before they come to Christ, but they have to be willing to realize or to accept or acknowledge that they're living in a wrong way, that they're sinners, that the things that they're involved in are sin against God, and they have to be willing to let go of these things, and when they come to Christ, to recognize it's a whole new way of life. It's obedience. That's really what the, what the Christian life is. It's obedience to what God has said. And I think it's important that we take a little time to probe a person. Why do you want to come to Christ? Well, I'm lonely. I, I, I need something. Hey, that's not, that's not wrong, necessarily. A lot of people come to Jesus for a lot of reasons. Um, maybe they've, they've abused their family so much because of their alcoholism, they've driven everybody away from them. They've come to rock bottom. They know that their life has been a total disaster. They're looking for something to change their life. That's fine. But they have to recognize that they're going to come to Jesus. It means breaking with the past and starting a whole new way of life. And he's not asking you to have the power to do that. But just be willing to give him control to do it. That's what repentance is all about. He'll give you the strength. That's what the Spirit's all about. But the Spirit doesn't come into anyone's life who's not willing to give up their sins. So, important point. He came preaching repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately, see, Mark likes that word, left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were, all, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now, Mark is so brief that we read this, and if we didn't have the insights of the other Gospels, we would almost assume that this is the first time Jesus is meeting these guys. He happens to be walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these four fishermen, and he just 
almost on the spur of the moment kind of a thing, calls them to follow him, and they do. That's not what's going on here because John, in his first, uh, the first chapter of his gospel, tells us that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And maybe Peter was too. And maybe James and John were. We're not sure. We know Andrew was. And we know that Andrew, when Jesus came to John and John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Andrew started to follow him. And Jesus said, Why, why are you following me? And Andrew and the other, another disciple who was with him said, uh, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see. They spent the whole day with him, and Andrew was so excited, he ran back to tell Peter, we found the Messiah. And then Peter started to follow Christ. Well, he started to kind of hang around, see. For a while, I believe James, John, Peter, and Andrew knew of Jesus. In fact, it seems to imply in the other Gospels, if we kind of piece it all together, that Jesus called them once earlier, and they followed for a little while, maybe he went back to their nets. And then he calls them uh, uh, the final time, and they left it all once and for all, and followed him. So these guys knew Jesus. They knew who he was. It wasn't something, uh, at least Andrew, we know, was a disciple of John the Baptist, and then became a disciple of Christ. So they didn't just meet him here. Uh, it wasn't just a, a chance meeting that then Jesus calls them. Little side observation, because I love these things, how the Holy Spirit places in the story some spiritual things kind of tucked away, okay? Jesus called four fishermen right here. Two of them were casting their nets, Peter and Andrew. They were the evangelists. That's when, when you cast a net, speaking of fishers of men. It's evangelism. Two of them were mending their nets, J, uh, James and John. The word there for mending in the Greek is the same exact Greek word used in Ephesians 4 of equipping the saints for works of ministry. Interestingly, after they left their literal fishing nets to become fishers of men, the two that were casting when Jesus called them, Andrew and Peter, are always evangelizing. In fact, read, every time Andrew's name is mentioned in the New Testament, he's always introducing somebody to Jesus Christ. He's always bringing somebody to Christ, literally, to introduce them to him, always. He always is introducing people to Christ. Peter, we know, on the day of Pentecost, began to preach and evangelize, and thousands were one the first day he stood up and preached. Now, James, the brother of John, was martyred relatively early in the church's existence. So James, we don't see much of his ministry. But John goes on to be the great encourager and equipper of the body of Christ because this son of thunder became a very loving disciple, my little children. This is the guy that wanted to call fire down from heaven, see? But being with the Lord, he saw the love of Christ, and he, he picked up on that. And John, through his epistles and all, became the great encourager of the church. My little children, love is of God. Therefore, let us love one another, for love is of God, and those who love are born of God and know God, and so on. So he's always equipping the saints, in a sense, by teaching them to love and to care for each other. And so it's interesting how that, just in this little thing here, it seems to kind of hold true the rest of our lives. Uh, Andrew and Peter, and, and John evangelized, don't get me wrong, and Peter mended nets, but it's interesting how that here, it kind of characterizes their lives and ministries for the Lord even after they became fishes of men. So here Peter and Andrew and James and John became disciples. Then it says they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Now, we think of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, which he was. When he got older, though, he moved to Capernaum. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 9, verse 1, it says that Jesus made his home in Capernaum. That's one of the reasons he had some strong things to say to them, because he lived among them, they saw his miracles, yet they didn't receive him. So their judgment was going to be more strict because they had first-hand knowledge and rejected it. But he made his home in Capernaum, even as it seems as, as Peter and Andrew came to later on. Uh, we know that originally, Peter and Andrew made their home in, in Bethsaida, and around the area of Judea. Then they moved up to Capernaum, probably, as we're going to see here in a moment, Peter's mother-in-law there in Capernaum was healed by Christ. Maybe when Peter got married, they moved up to the area of the Galilee to live uh, possibly maybe with his wife's mother up there in Capernaum. Jesus, though, made his home up there. It was kind of like his base of operations. 
And when we were in Israel, we went to Capernaum. You can go there and see the ruins of the city. And we saw the synagogue, because it says here that he entered the synagogue and taught. And we saw the ruins of the synagogue of Capernaum, not the one that Jesus taught in, because that was destroyed. This one was one that was built about a couple hundred years later, probably on the same spot the old one was built on. But uh, it was a very important part of the Jewish life, the synagogue. Uh, first of all, synagogues came into existence after the Babylonian captivity, when the temple was destroyed, the Jews were carried off to Babylon. Those that remained in the land, and then of course those who finally came back, were scattered throughout the land. They began to, to meet in, in synagogues, really, which was just a meeting place. And uh, if you had ten Jewish men, you could start a synagogue. You had to have ten Jewish men to start a synagogue. And the synagogue was always built pretty much in the very center of the community. In fact, every place we went in Israel, we saw the ruins of many cities. We saw uh, Chorazin, we saw Capernaum, we saw different ruins of different cities. And it's interesting, all the Jewish communities, they always had a synagogue built right in the middle of town. Now, we don't, I think, get the full impact of what it meant to be disfellowshipped or put out of the synagogue. But if you understand Jewish life in a community, and how everything revolved around the synagogue, which was right in the middle of town. There wasn't a synagogue at every corner, like there's a church on every corner in America. If you were disfellowshipped from the synagogue, you might as well leave town. Because you couldn't, nobody would speak with you. You couldn't hold a job. You were, it was a big thing. And it carried a lot of weight, uh, the threat of being put out of the synagogue. And so disciplinary actions would go a long way if you said, look, if you don't repent, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. Hey, that carried a lot of weight. And Jewish people would really try to do what they were supposed to do because of that, the, uh, the consequences. Today, church discipline doesn't really carry the same weight as it did back then because uh, if we have to disfellowship somebody because they refuse to repent, they just go down the street to another church. It doesn't really carry the same impact. But back then, it was a big deal. Remember, the synagogue was different from the temple. The temple was the place where people worshipped God. It was the center of the Jewish life. The nation, okay, was the temple. But a lot of Jews lived a long ways away from the temple. And they needed a place to come. And the synagogue was not a place really to worship God because that was done through the sacrificial system. The synagogue was a place for teaching and instruction. In fact, three things happened in the synagogue. Prayer the reading of the law, and the teaching or the exposition of the law. And there wasn't any pastor or anyone who would stand up and give a sermon every week. And they, they didn't just meet on the Sabbath. They would meet on Mondays and Thursdays too. So it was a community thing. And it was really the, the heart of their life as a community. The synagogue had a ruler, somebody who oversaw the thing, and they would collect alms for the poor. It was his responsibility to distribute them among the poor in the community. It was also his responsibility to make sure the Torah scrolls were properly cared for. And when we went to the synagogues, it's interesting, behind the altar, uh, there was always, sometimes behind the altar was maybe in front of a wall, and right behind the wall, there was always a, uh, a hole in the ground where the old Torah scrolls were buried because they were sacred. And they would bury them like a person once they got worn out. And it was his responsibility to kind of oversee all that. But he really wasn't the pastor in a sense. He just kind of oversaw the mechanical, physical functions of the synagogue. And what they would do is they depended on somebody in the community or uh, somebody who was passing through a visitor who was a rabbi or somebody who was, uh, who was schooled in the scriptures to give a reading and then a teaching. And so that's why it was quite common for Jesus to go to the various synagogues and be asked to teach because he was a rabbi and they all knew that. And so that's what would happen. So he came to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And um, read Luke 4 about what he taught on. Uh, we don't have time to get into it. But he asks for the scroll of Isaiah. He turns to Isaiah chapter 61, which wasn't chapter 61 back then, because that was added much later in the 13th century, but the chapters and all. But he turns to that section in Isaiah that today is chapter 61, and he reads a prophecy about the Messiah. 
And he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, verses 1 and 2. He has anointed me to preach the good news and so on, and to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and so on, and uh, the acceptable year of the Lord. And he hands it back and sits down because that's he's going be, to begin to teach now. The rabbis would always sit when they began to teach. And uh, if you study Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you realize that Jesus Christ stopped at a comma because the rest of the verse goes, and the year of vengeance of our God. But see, he wasn't here to proclaim the year of vengeance. He wasn't here to bring judgment. That was going to come his second coming, when he would come with the sword out of his mouth, you know, and he would strike the earth and bring judgment. The first time he came, he brought, he came to offer them the good news of the kingdom. See? Now, it's interesting in the Old Testament, you often have scriptures, prophecies of the first coming and the second coming in the same verse, divided only by a comma. Now, we know the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ have been separated by at least 2,000 years, which we call the church age. We know that the church age is separated or will separate the first and second coming of Christ. But in the Old Testament, see, Paul said the church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament saint. So you take that out, you get the first and second coming slapped right up against each other. And that was such a problem for the rabbis because in the one part of the verse, they hear about Messiah coming and suffering and dying. The second part of the verse, it would be he's, he establishes the kingdom and reigns in glory from Jerusalem. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. Because how could a Messiah come and be killed and all and rejected? And then he's reigning in glory and there must be two Messiahs. So they actually taught a dual Messiah thing where the first Messiah was going to be a false Messiah, and then the second Messiah would be a, the real Messiah who would establish the kingdom. Well, it was the same Messiah. He was going to come twice, though. They didn't see that because the church separated the first and second coming, but they were blinded to the church age, which, of course, we have the, the benefit of understanding. So he entered the synagogue and taught, and it says here that they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This was a new thing for them. See, the scribes were the ones who copied the law. They didn't have printing presses, of course. So the scribes would copy the law, the word of God. And they were very meticulous. They had a whole thing that they went through. I mean, they were very meticulous. And thank God because they gave to us an accurate transmission of the word of God from manuscript to manuscript. See? The scribes were very learned, and they would, many of them had memorized the entire Old Testament. They could recite it from memory without missing a syllable. Uh, they were not, no slouches. And it was their responsibility also to kind of interpret in a, in a way. The greatest scribes, the most learned, became rabbis. So a rabbi was a higher form of a scribe, you might say. A little bit, you know, obviously a more learned, more respected person, although the scribes were respected too. No doubt about it. And a scribe's responsibility was not only to write the law, copy it, but they would interpret it, and they would teach it, but they never gave their own opinion. They always would teach like this. Well, Rabbi Hillel says that this passage means this. Or Rabbi Gamaliel says it means that. They would never offer their own opinion. They would never say, well, I say that this means, see, they never do that. Over the years, all these oral interpretations became the oral law. And the oral law was then finally written down into the Mishnah, which was really the commentary on the Old Testament law, the Torah. And later on, the Mishnah became the Talmud. And so what started off at 600 and 613 or something like that in the, in the Torah, uh, 613 commandments became many hundred in the Mishnah because they would interpret uh, no work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, then the, they would give all the, can't do this, this, and that. It became, and then the Talmud expanded on the Mishnah. So by the time Jesus came onto the scene, there was over 6,000 prohibitions for just the Sabbath day law. You know? It became a real mess and real tedious to try to observe. In fact, the common man just basically wrote it off and said, there's no way I'm going to ever observe the law. There's no way. Just too much. It, it can't be done for me. And the Pharisees, they weren't really keeping the law either, but they kidded themselves into thinking they were. But the scribes taught always quoting somebody else, but Jesus came quoting no one. In fact, he said to them, his disciples, you have heard it said, you know, of old. 
but I say to you. And he could do that, of course, because he was God. And he was the Word of God. He was what the Word was all about. So he comes and they're astonished because he, he teaches them with uh, authority. And the only way for us to ever teach with authority is to teach from the Word of God. Because Jesus, of course, is the Word. See, Jesus taught with authority because he was the Word. And the only way for us to teach with any kind of authority is to teach the Word of God. Whenever the church gets away from the Word of God and begins to teach man's philosophies and man's theories and uh, you know, how to correct marital family problems and problems of life in general by quoting this psychologist and that person, you're doing the very thing the scribes did. But Jesus came, taught with authority, because he had authority. And when we proclaim what he said and teach the Word of God, even though we don't have any of the authority really, we have it through his, his word. Even Jesus said, the words I came to give you are not mine, they're my Father's. See, the authority came from him. He gave it to me, Jesus said, and I'm giving it to you as my church. But you've got to proclaim my word. That's the only way people's lives are going to be changed and made new. So they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Ah, here we go now. Mark wants us to see the servanthood of Jesus Christ, but he does also wants us to see the fact that he is the Son of God. Because that's what the gospel is. The Son of God coming to die for the sins of mankind. And so he's showing us and those that he's writing to that Jesus Christ has authority, first of all, over the spirit realm and over sickness and disease and nature. And, you know, he's, he's the Messiah. He is the Son of God because he has proven it through many infallible proofs. Even as Jesus said to the to the people he was ministering to. He said, look, if you don't believe the words I say, then believe that I'm the Messiah for the sake of the works themselves. The works that I do testify of who I am. So look at the works and realize that, you know, these are the works of God. But he confronts a man here in the synagogue who has an unclean spirit. And it's interesting, the spirit, first of all, cries out and says, let us alone. Now he's speaking in the plural, and I think what he's saying is, let me and this man alone. I don't think that there's more than one demon in this guy. Because later on he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he's so united himself with this guy that he's speaking for both of them, us. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting. The demons knew who he was. Did they believe him to be the Son of God? Absolutely. Well... Does that mean that we're saved? Not at all. But what's the point? Well, the point is this. James said, you believe in God? Great. So do the demons. And they tremble. Believing in God never saved anybody. Just to believe in God doesn't save. Even to believe in Jesus. A lot of people intellectually believe in Jesus Christ. They are not atheists. They believe he is the Son of God. They believe he died on the cross for their sins. They believe he rose again the third day. And if you press them, they might even admit that their only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. You can believe a lot of right things about Jesus Christ and never go to heaven, you know that? Because you have to take the next step and give him control of your life. Believing is great, but you have to believe to the point of commitment. And that's the key. So a lot of people who believe a lot of good things about Jesus Christ are never and are not going to go to heaven. And Jesus talked about them all the way through the Gospels. One of my favorites that I've quoted from quite often, Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 through 27. He said to them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, see, that's the key, in heaven, obedience. For many will come to me on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons in your name, uh, done many good things in your name, and prophesied in your name? And he'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You who practiced lawlessness, or you who did not live according to the law of God. Because if you're really born again, you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. New nature. You want to do the will of God now. You want to live for him, see? And then Jesus went on to give a parable. He said, therefore, everyone who hears my words and does them, very important point, I will liken to a man who built his house in a rock, 
And when the rains descended and the winds came and the floods beat against that house, it stood for it was built on a rock. And everyone who hears my words and does not do them, I will liken to a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rains descended, the winds came, and the floods beat against that house, and immediately it fell, for it was built on the sand. The point is, you got two people. Both of them seem to be churchgoers because they both hear the word of God. One of them applies what he hears, obeys. One of them goes out and doesn't. And Jesus seems to be indicating on the day of judgment, the man who built his house on the word of God, as evidenced by his obedience to the word of God, his faith is going to stand. It was genuine. It will withstand the judgment of God, and be, he'll be saved. The guy who went to church, heard the same word, but built his house on disobedience, lived his life not according to the word that he heard, but just you know, in disobedience to God. When he stands before God and gives to God the line, well, I believed in you, the Lord is going to shoot back and say, no, you didn't. If you really had believed in me, you would have obeyed me. See, So those that don't believe, uh, don't obey, truly don't believe. And so the demons believe and tremble, no big deal. I mean, they're not saved because they obviously don't obey God. But they believe with all their heart that he's the son of God. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him rise from the dead on the third day. They believe everything we do, but they're not saved. It's a very important lesson. And so they said, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Um, another time, remember, the, we're going to get to it, I think in chapter 5, the demon-possessed guy of Gadara. Remember what the demon said? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They don't know who he is, and they apparently know that someday he is going to cast them into the lake of fire. They know that they have a limited amount of time that they can work their stuff. They know the judgment is coming. They know that he is going to eventually cast them into the lake of fire. So they say to him, you know, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what does he say to him? Shut up and come out of him. He didn't want Satan advertising who he was. Even though this demon was telling the truth, he was the Holy One of God. He was the Son of God. Well, Satan will tell the truth at times, if it will serve his purpose. We sometimes think of Satan using only lies to get across his purposes. He does most of the time. But there are times, remember Paul in Acts chapter 16, when he's in Philippi? And he was, you know, this demon-possessed maiden followed him for three days and said, Look, everyone, listen to them. These are the servants of God who teach us the way of, of, of righteousness and, and eternal life and all. They were, the demon was ex telling exactly the truth. What did Paul do? He got so irritated, he rebuked this demon and cast it out of this girl. Paul didn't want Satan advertising his ministry. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but the most obvious one is guilt by association. If Satan could come alongside of us and put his armor on us in a sense and say the same things we are, then people associate the message with him. Uh, that's why you'll see oftentimes some goofy guy or some person in ministry who's obviously, obviously not of God, yet he preaches the same message we do, same thing we say. You know what happens when we begin to say that same message to a person who's seen this guy in action? They associate us with him because of the message is the same. It's guilt by association. And it's a very clever way of causing people to reject the truth because he puts it in the mouth of some obviously demonic minister. And so Jesus did not want Satan advertising who he was. He didn't need anybody to, uh, to do that. And so Jesus said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So now... The word is getting out. Jesus has tried to keep very low-key. He doesn't want a lot of hysteria. See, he wants, you know, and it's interesting. So often we try to do just the opposite in the church. We want a lot of, you know, excitement and energy. We want the crowds gathering. You know, we want the spectacular and the miracles happening because it draws the people. Jesus down, tried to downplay all that. Why? Because he knew with fame would come 
lot of would-be disciples, thrill-seekers, phony disciples who would attach themselves to Jesus, you know, hitch their wagon to his star in a sense, and he knew that, that would have just watered down and hurt the, uh, the movement. So he tried to downplay that because he didn't want any mixed multitudes coming. Like in the Old Testament, whenever God is moving and God is working miracles and delivering people and all that, you always have a mixed multitude. The ones that came with Moses out of Egypt, they weren't really committed to God, but they wanted to kind of see what God was going to do next. It was exciting to see Jehovah moving. And they really were thrill seekers. There's a lot of thrill seekers in the body of Christ that I don't believe a lot of them are really in the body of Christ. But they come to church and they bounce from church to church and look in the papers at uh, who's slain in the spirit over here or who's casting out demons over here. And they, they run from one exciting experience to the other. And it's sad. They're just would-be disciples looking for the thrill, you know, or looking for what God's going to give them. And Jesus didn't want that. He wanted true disciples who understood what it was all about to follow him and were willing to lay down their lives for the cause. And... Um, for the sake of others. So, Father, we thank you, Lord. We just thank you for your word, how rich and how uh, wonderful it is. We just thank you, Lord, that in it we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. We need look nowhere else, Lord, to find the answers to our problems or um, instruction for living the Christian life. We just thank you, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to help us to make the word more important to us than our daily bread, but to feed on it constantly and to walk in its light and to thus show the world that we are yours. Lord, we thank you now and pray that you would just guide us home safely and help us to learn and apply the things that you've taught us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.